Well, we're over in the book of Esther. We all had so much fun with it last time. <laughs> that we decided to go on back and look at it again. The last week we were here, we were looking at some of the setups that were going in here and uh, determining which king this was. Of course, this is Xerxes, the, uh, the king that was there. Um, as far as history is concerned, he is a king that I really think very little of. I don't, I don't like him much at all. There isn't a single Persian king that I like, really. Uh, there's one that was kind of nice to Israel at, at times. I believe that was his son, Xerxes' son. Uh, who did some nice things for Israel for a bit. So he's got a little bit of good stuff there. But generally, they were pretty nasty kings. And um, the whole Persian history was... Uh, it's just not one of those things that really drew me in a whole lot. And here we have these folks that are dealing with them. Their whole viewpoint of people. They were brutal people. Their view of women was harsh, uh, degrading. And the king certainly had most of that. We saw that in the first couple of chapters of the decree that went out to make sure that all women obeyed their husbands, no matter what they asked, which is, just shows you the, the uh, viewpoint of it. Uh, as we get into this one, we're going to find out that Esther has been left alone for a month. Seems the king hasn't called her. Now we know what the king is busy with during that month because he's uh, involved with the second harem now. And um, I don't know. It's a, I hope you all know that my viewpoint, or bringing out that viewpoint of Esther now and the rest of the woman being in the used car lot, was not my viewpoint. <laughs> it is totally the way that they looked at it. I mean, really, you think about it. Xerxes is more used than. Uh, I mean, come on now. They was he's just. It's just a deplorable way of looking at things, and I, I I'll make fun of it because I think very little of the Persian Empire. Of all the empires that the Word of God goes over, I think the least of them. And the next closest to it is Babylon. I really don't like either of those kingdoms. They're both at the bottom of my uh, desire to study list <laughs> as far as history is concerned. But it is in the Word of God and we have it here and Esther is going to make the most of this. Now we looked at her last week because a lot of people look at this book from a standpoint of God just worked out the whole thing so that Esther was in a position to save His people. And I just don't agree with that. I, as we looked at it last week, in order for God to put this together, God had to overlook a whole lot of His Word and His desire for His kids and certainly His daughter Esther. And I do not think that God says, you know what, I need something done. I need, need you to take one for the team. <laughs> I just don't see God doing that because God is bigger than that. And if God needs something done, uh, He doesn't need... A, a poor girl like this to go through what she's going through and to become queen in order for him to accomplish his purpose. I mean, he could have all the Persians drop dead. He could have it be that everybody who picks up the sword against the Jews drops dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the God that we serve. He's just that big. He does not need this to go on. But at any rate, this is what is going on. So we have a, a new character who comes on the scene here in chapter 3. And this is Haman. A very uh, well-known name in the circles of all all these things. After these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as we know him, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite. How many of y'all know what an Agite is? Agagite. That is the shortened name or what they would give to an Amalekite. 
So Haman is an Amalekite. And advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with the king bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So though it wasn't stated, apparently the king commanded that not only would homage be paid to the king, but also at least to this particular servant who has been elevated. Don't know that it was to all of them. Typically, this kind of uh, homage was only paid to the king. It was a worship. And the uh, Persian kings did see themselves as gods. They, and they wanted to be worshipped as such. And so when you came on by, you had to not just you know, bow as courtesy or in respect, but it was a worshipful bow. But Mordecai, he wouldn't do it. So the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now a whole lot is said in here without really being said. What Mordecai is saying is I'm a Jew and I worship God. I don't give that kind of homage or worship to anyone but God. And I'm not going to give it to the king and I'm not going to give it to uh, this servant Haman. And so that's what they reported it. But for a number of days, these servants had tried to convince him to just go along with the program. And it didn't happen. And so they eventually go to, to Haman and talk to him about this particular thing. Now, he was, uh, again, Haman was an, uh, an Amalekite, which I'm sure the nationality was known to Mordecai. He went around as, as uh, the, the Agagite and Apparently that was well known, not well known to most of us, but apparently well known to them. Now, first off, one of the reasons that he didn't want to give worship to him was because of his worship to God. And that would have been one of the cases. But here is something interesting. Haman does not know that anyone in the kingdom doesn't bow and pay homage to him. He didn't even recognize that Mordecai wasn't doing it. Someone had to bring it to his attention. So if it, was a, if it was a Jewish thing, why are there not more Jews who are not doing it? At least that are mentioned. It, it seems to just be him. It may be a personal conviction of his and that the rest of them just went along with it. And that's certainly a, 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 a thing that could have, could have happened. Uh, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14 through 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for memorial in the book and recount it to the, in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called his name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So they were a cursed people. And Mordecai is saying, I am not going to give worship to one that God has cursed. And I'm sure that's part of it. what's, what's in there. Because um, we saw some less than respectable things of Mordecai last week. But it does seem that when he has a belief and a principle, he does seem to hold to it. And this seems to be one. So they said, why do you transgress the king's command? And it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them. That they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, he didn't realize it up till then. But now that they bring it up, he's looking for it. And he finds Mordecai. Ah, yeah, look at that. 
Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on him, or hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai instead. I'm sorry, instead Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So he, I mean, this is, shows some, some restraint on Haman's part because this is a very prideful individual. This is the guy who's extremely prideful, extremely puffed up with himself. And he, is, he ascends all the way up to the second highest in the kingdom. How many of y'all know people like that at work? <laughs> and they just keep seeing to going higher and higher and that's what this guy does. And uh, he, he doesn't really have a whole lot of principles that he holds to. All that he wants to do is get power. So he's going to come up with a plot. We're going to wipe out all of the Jews. Now Mordecai is going to look at this whole plot in this way. He's going to see this as Esther is in the position of being queen for the sole purpose of saving the Jews from this part, this point right here. How many have ever heard that thought? I mean, people have kind of adopted that and said, Esther was put in this position because God knew that this was going to happen. And we need Esther in there to take care of it. However, Esther is in the palace and Mordecai hangs out by the king's gate. Why does Mordecai hang out by the king's gate? Because Esther is in the palace. If Esther is not in the palace, does Mordecai hang out at the king's gate? If Mordecai doesn't hang out at the king's gate, does Haman ever see him? Do we ever have a problem? <laughs> you see, the very thing that we're looking at for a solution to a problem is really the cause. Because <laughs> Mordecai has no reason to be here except he's trying to get as close to Esther as he can. And so he hangs out by the gate because he's not allowed through the gate. Only certain people are allowed to go through the gate. So he hangs out at the gate and Esther can send people down to the gate to get word from Mordecai and they can converse back and forth. So if he's not there and Haman comes through the gate, because Haman is coming through the gate all the time, because he's second in charge with the king, so he's going to the palace and he keeps bypassing this and every time he doesn't bow, the servants bring it up. You know, you need to bow. But all these days, he hadn't even seen it. Haman hadn't even seen it. It wasn't until these folks brought it up. But if Mordecai is not there, does Haman ever develop a hatred for the Jews? Probably not. Now, it may still have happened, but really, I mean, it was a hatred for Mordecai. But when he finds out that his excuse is he's Jewish, he says, let's get them all. So really, if you want to see the cause of the problem here, it's Mordecai. <laughs> and the solution is not Esther in the palace. Esther in the palace was the problem. Mordecai wouldn't be there. But anyway, this is what we have. We have the queen, Esther, in the palace and Mordecai at the gate. And the problem comes up in Haman's man. So in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot before Haman, determined the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. These are months, these are Jewish names for the months, not Persian. We were... Esther is written to the Jews. We're not going to give them in Persian months. So that's part of it there. Not necessarily the thing that, that they are looking at. So we have the, in the first month. Now this is the thing that the, uh, the kings constantly did in Persia is that they would by lot find out what is the lucky month. They want to know what is, this is basically what they're asking. What is the lucky month? What of all the months that are out there, what is the lucky month for this 
to work. And so they apparently cast lots and they come up with the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. The Jewish people sometimes have two months of Adar, from what I'm told from the Jewish calendar. Sometimes they have a double. They have Adar 1 and Adar 2. <laughs> the reason they have that is because they have 30 days in every month. And they, we do a leap year to make up for the quarter day that we, that we don't have. They don't. They have the same amount of days in every month. And so every once in a while, they throw in an extra month. And the extra month is an extra month of Adar. <laughs> so there's actually a Adar 1 and a Adar 2. But not every year. Just uh, every, uh, I don't know how many, every so often, whatever number of years you need to make up for that. Which is not too often, but they would, uh, they would do that. So verse 8. Throw the lots came up with the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all their other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring into the king's treasuries. So this is the proposal that is here. Let's hit over this part of it, the 10,000 talents of silver. It is a lot of money. I looked it up and I found estimates of between... They calculated out. It's not just an estimate. They calculated out from $7.5 million to two and a quarter billion dollars. That is a lot of money, isn't it? And he says, I will pay it into the king's treasury. So my first question is, if you have that much money, why are you working? <laughs> right? <laughs> why are we not on some Persian beach somewhere enjoying the life? <laughs> Why in the world are we working if we have seven point five million to two point two five billion dollars? Now here's the next part. I think I got as much of this in your outline as I can. King Xerxes was the richest man in the world at his in his day. He is the richest man. When the Greeks came on over, when Alexander came over and conquered Persia and they uh they took the capital, they became extremely rich. They went from not having a whole lot to the soldiers were just money everywhere. You know that just from the Greek history part. But the second richest man in the world at this time, his fortune was valued at 16,400 talents. The second richest man, his, at this, the historians of his day, valued his money at 16,400 talents. So, no matter how we calculate out 10,000 talents, we can tell it is a lot of money. If the second richest man has 16, and Haman is going to give them 10, we might almost think that Haman is the third richest man. If he's going to pay this much just to have the right to, to do this. But it's not quite that cut and dry. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, and the enemies of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. What he has given him authority over is the lives of the Jews and their money. That's probably something that he asked for. But this is what he got. So he is probably counting 
on some of the Jewish people's money to pay the 10,000 talents. And apparently, the Jewish people, even though they are captives in the land of Persia, have a lot of money. <laughs> if he is calculating out that he is going to get 10,000 talents to pay, and I'm sure there's going to be money left over for him, plus he's using the money to bribe the people of the land to do the killing. So we're going to have enough money to pay off King Xerxes 10,000 talents, enough money to make Haman happy, and enough money to pay all the other people to do the killing. So the Jewish people in this day apparently had a lot of money. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to Haman, according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by carriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month. So the decree goes out on the 13th day of the first month to be executed on the 13th day of the 12th month. That's a lot of time. But you need time, you know, to get the, everything dispute, uh, distributed and get everybody on board. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. And the carriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Sushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Sushan was perplexed. <laughs> what in the world is going on? Why are we doing this? They're not sure. Well, I went and did some digging and found a copy of the decree. And here's how it reads. The copy of the letter was this. The great king Artaxerxes writeth these things to the princes and governors that are under him from India into unto Ethiopia in a hundred and seven and twenty providence. After that I became lord over many nations and had dominion over the whole world, not lifted up with presumption of my authority, but carrying myself always with equity and mildness. I proposed to settle my subjects continually in quiet life and making my kingdom peaceable and open for passage to the utmost coast to renew peace with his desired of all men. Now who sounds like his writing Sounds like the king's writing it, right? But who wrote it? Amen. And the scribes. And the king just gave them the ring. So they're writing it as if the king is saying this thing. Now when I asked my counselors how this might be brought to pass, Amen or Haman, that excelled in wisdom among us, <laughs> he's a real humble guy. <clears throat> So Amen that excelled in wisdom among us and was approved for his constant goodwill and steadfast fidelity and had the honor of the second place in the kingdom <laughs> declared unto us that in all nations throughout the world there were scattered a certain malicious people 
that had laws contrary to all nations and continually despised the commandments of kings as the uniting of our kingdoms, honorably intended by us, cannot go forward. Seeing then, we understand that this people alone is continually in opposition unto all men, differing in the strange manner of their laws and evil effect to our state, working all the mischief they can that our kingdom may not be firmly established. Therefore have we commanded that all they that are signified in writing unto you by Amen, who is ordained over the affairs and is... Um, got a word partially knocked out there by the... Then uh, is... Um, I think it's vexed unto us, shall all with, with their wives and their children be utterly destroyed by the sword of their enemies without all mercy and pity the fourteenth day of the twelfth month of Adar of this present year. That they who, are, who of old and now also are malicious may in one day with violence go into the grave. And so ever hereafter cause our affairs to be well settled and without trouble. Uh, just make sure I read uh, all of it. But, uh, yeah, there's actually more in this. And where this comes from is the Apocrypha has some extra additions to the book of Esther. And that's where I'm reading from. They actually put a copy of the, the decree into there. I'll just keep on reading the rest of it here. I, don't, I think that is pretty much the decree. Then Mardokus thought upon all the works of the Lord and made his prayer to him, saying, O Lord, Lord, the Almighty the King Almighty, for the whole world is thy power. And if thou hast appointed to save Israel, there is no man that can gainsay thee. Now, Mar Mardokus, I don't know if that's supposed to also be Mordecai, but it might be. For thou hast made heaven and earth and all wondrous things under the heaven. Thou art Lord of all things, and there is no man that can resist thee, which art the Lord. Thou knowest all things, and thou knowest, Lord, that it was neither in contempt nor pride nor for any desire of glory that I did not bow down to proud Amun. For I could have been content with good will for the salvation of Israel to kiss the soles of his feet. But I did this that I might not prefer the glory of man above the glory of God. Neither will I worship any but thee, O God. Neither will I do it in pride. And now, O Lord God and King, spare thy people, for their eyes are upon us to bring us to naught. Yea, thy desire to destroy the inheritance that hath been thine from the beginning. Despise not the portion which thou hast delivered out of Egypt for thine own self. Hear my prayer and be merciful unto thine inheritance. Turn our sorrow into joy that we may live, O Lord, and praise thy name and destroy not the mouths of them that praise thee, O Lord. All Israel in like manner cried most earnestly unto the Lord because their day or their death was before their eyes. So it seems like he's taken some acknowledgement of his, his role in this and that he could have stopped it. But at any rate, this is where we're at. Again, as far as we know, Mordecai was never exhorted to have, uh, you, you should have bowed. And there probably was no reason for it. I don't think God ever sits up there and says, Mordecai, I need you to bow because there's going to be trouble if you don't. That's not the way our God works. So as best I can tell, God's up there watching men make all these decisions and create all kinds of problems. Which he still was up there watching us make all kinds of decisions and create all kinds of problems. Even today. And then eventually we get on around like Mordecai does and we, we go to God and we say, you know what, we're in a mess. 
and we need some help. And God says, all right, we'll give you some help. And God does. As far as I can tell, God was never set out to try and figure out whose problem it was or whose fault it was. God just said, they're my people and I'll take care of it. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So this decree is spreading all the way around and as it does, the Jews are finding out about this and they're kind of upset. I'm sure that there's some people that are on their side and say, we're not sure why we're supposed to kill you. And then there's other people that said, I can't wait. Because you know, you always have that with just about any, any group of people. <laughs> so, Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Now, the reason she's trying to do this is because she doesn't want him arrested. She does, she's not so concerned that he's in sackcloth and ashes. She's concerned that he's in sackcloth and ashes by the king's gate. And apparently, even from what we've read here, you can kind of tell that Mordecai is pushing it. He's not supposed to go through the gate, but he's getting maybe as close as he... You know, is this too close? <laughs> One of those kind of things. You ever see the little kids? Don't, don't go over there. Am I in there yet? <laughs> Am I too close yet? <laughs> I'm not over yet. <laughs> and we're coming right up to it. And so she's kind of um, noticing Mordecai doing this. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. It's a promise. He hasn't paid it yet. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Sushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go in to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So apparently this thing is going all around the kingdom, but not to her. She doesn't know about it. And it's really easy to, to get sheltered and, and, to, and to not know what's going on out and around you. And that's what the, where they are. You know, it all depends on, on, on what's going on. Uh, there was a, um, a story of, I don't even know who his name was, but there was some politician who was, uh, I think it was a representative, house representative or something, because he was having one of those town hall meetings. And one of the people in the town hall meeting brought up the situation, I think, think that the situation they brought up was the one that happened here in Philadelphia where we had the uh, uh, Black Panthers who were blocking the election thing. And he said, I don't think anything like that happened. I don't think anything like that had gone on. And they, people when they were in the, in the room were arguing with him that it had gone on. He says, uh, I, I haven't heard anything about that at all. I don't think it's happened. I think you're wrong. <laughs> and then he came out later on and said, oh, apparently it had happened. And the news sources that I listened to just didn't cover it. <laughs> and so he was in a whole world over here and even though this was going on and all his people and his consistency knew about it, he didn't. And we can get the same way. You know, if you only get surrounded by a certain group of people and all she's surrounded by is apparently the maids and the eunuchs and the people in the palace 
And this isn't something going around in the palace. This is something going around in the kingdom. And so she's totally oblivious to it, has no idea that it's going on. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Now Esther, she's, she's known in Esther before her. I didn't cover this last time. But uh, she's, this is not her Jewish name. This is her Jewish name made into a Persian name. I believe uh, we actually read her Jewish name in the other, uh, Hadassah. That is her Jewish name. But uh, he didn't want her to go by her Jewish name. He wanted her to go by a more feasible Persian name. So Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Certainly they will. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So his viewpoint is you've been elevated to queen just to stop this thing. But as we can see, may not have even gone on if she hadn't been queen. But at any rate, he's a... what his words are basically right. You can't just hide from it. If God is going to lead you to go ahead and to do this thing, you need to do it. And don't think just because you're in the palace that you're going to be spared. If God sees that you're hiding out of fear and not standing up for his people, he won't like that so much. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Sushan and fast for, for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Now she's going to get her maids involved. Again, the whole idea was to keep her identity as a Jew secret. But apparently she, if she has not revealed it to her maids as of yet, then she's going to reveal it now. Now to the eunuchs that have been serving her, they've been going out and delivering messages between her and Mordecai. So they may be wondering, who is this guy? Well, he's my uncle. So it may be that, you know, it's, Esther's not being all that careful, it seems. As she's trying to conceal it, uh, she has entrusted these eunuchs whose loyalty is first and foremost to the king. But apparently they didn't see any reason to, to go out there and, to, and to divulge this because up until the time that Esther divulges that she's a Jew, the king does not know it. And nor does Haman. Which is good. Haman would have changed the plan. I'm going with another plan if he knew. And as we pick this up again in the, in the uh, next week, we'll pick up the next two chapters and we'll see what's going on with this. But let's take another look at a few of the things that are going on with this. When Haman was passing through, we see the pride that Haman has. And it is such a pride that I am worthwhile. We see even from the decree that he wrote how much he thinks of himself. And people who think of themselves this way, I mean, they can be kind of a stench to us. You ever run into people who think of themselves as highly? And uh, they can do no wrong. And everyone else is, is wrong. F- and, you know, we're, we're the, who we are. And how many of you all wanted to just bring them down a notch or two? <laughs> it's, you know, you're a little too high and mighty. You need to come down a little bit. And, uh, and we kind of want to help that out. <laughs> right? <laughs> Haven't we ever wanted to help that out? And find those people that just say, man, you're just riding too high and mighty. <laughs> We want to get in there and, and to take that down. And what we have to guard against is that we can get this, this super spiritual mentality that we are better than they are because they think of themselves so pridefully. And it will take us and move us into a place that we should not be. The people that were trying to correct Mordecai, the other servants, you need to bow down. You need to not create such a, a problem here. 
And when he would not listen to them because he said, I'm a Jew and we're not going to bow down to any prince or king. We bow down to the Father God. And that's all. And so when they finally decide we're not going to get anywhere, they go and they tell Haman. What is the purpose of the servants telling Haman? Is it to fix a, a, a um, wrong? No, because it's not a wrong done to them. I mean, it's nothing to, to them at all. It's, if, if anything, it's probably to put themselves in good graces. Put themselves in that, that Haman, this all-powerful guy, would say, oh, you nice loyal subjects, as I go higher and become richer, I'm going to bring you along with me because you've helped me out. And I'm sure it's probably some of that kind of stuff going on. How many people have we worked with? We see these high and mighty people, these prideful people, and then other people who clamor around them and try and you know, glean off of their promotions and uh, other things that they're getting and will sacrifice you in the process. Would divulge something about you, say something evil about you, put you in an evil spot. And um, we can get kind of upset at that, can't we? These folks have no other reason for doing this than to elevate themselves, which is the same thing that um, Haman is doing. He's just trying to elevate himself. And he doesn't see, he sees these people as a problem, even though, really, they are no problem to him. He's second ruler in the kingdom. What could they possibly do? But, you know, you get this, this idea that this, this thing that goes on with, with people and they just, they want more and more and more power. As we know from the Word of God, power is supposed to be servant, servanthood. You're supposed to be there to serve the people. We've seen leaders all across this, this land and I know the lands as well where power from leadership is no longer there to serve the people but is there to abuse them. How many countries and, and other places the rulers have formed these dictators and they slaughter the people. They put them in fear. They starve them. They do all these, these manner of things that are, that are going on and it's... Uh, it's, it's terrible. That in Haiti. I mean, how much relief has gone into Haiti and most of it doesn't even reach the people who need it? How much money has been pumped into Haiti for years and still they're in poverty? And, you know, we have those well-meaning in government, supposedly well-meaning in government, who come on out there and will throw Haiti out as an example. How can we have such a poor nation right next door? Well, it's not from lack of money. We have poured lots of money into them, but there's a wrong attitude about them and and the leadership there just sucks it up. They, they want it for themselves. And this is the wrong kind of, kind of attitude that, that comes up in people who have power and want more power. Always make sure we keep the attitude that power is to serve. We must serve in a position of power. We are never to lord it over people, to abuse people, or to hurt people. That the more power we have in the kingdom of God, the more we are to use it to help others, to serve others, and not to elevate ourselves. Oh, we got to make sure that we we do all those kind of things because we're not seeing it. I mean, uh, uh, we got elections coming up. You make sure when you when you go out there and vote. We're going. I'm going. I was hoping to get it out here for tonight, but we'll try and put it out for you from Sunday. There's a lot of Christian organizations who put things out to show you how different ones have voted that are running, and you know, look them over and see how they voted and. Uh, you go with it from your spirit from there. you got to go in there informed. you got to know who it is that you're voting for. Because certainly God holds us accountable. And we got to make sure that we put these, these things in. Because people are in office that are not there to serve the people. They're there to serve themselves. And they are serving themselves. There was a um, 
uh, one of the debates that went on just recently. I don't know if any of you, I caught part of it. Uh, but um, Harry Reid is in a big battle over in his, his area. And one of the questions that his opponent, I cannot think of her name, um, but she asked him a question. She said, Harry Reid, how is it that when you took the Senate, you were not a man of great means and now you're one of the richest people around? And Harry Reid uh, was very indignant at the question. And he uh, said, well, I was certainly a, a successful lawyer for a number of years before and we invested that money. And so then people went out there and started looking around. What, uh, where was he a lawyer at? Because most of his, he has public resumes that he put up. And you know, the guy was a lawyer for two years in some pretty well unknown law firm for two years. But he said that uh, he got rich because of his investments off of his law firm money that he made from that and not from being senator. And then if you go back on the records, you'll find out that Harry Reid got a, uh, a payment, I think one point, one and a half, one, uh, one and a half million dollars for the sale of a property that he did not even have his name on. But that wasn't a part of it. <laughs> that wasn't part of it. He, he didn't even bring that up. Yeah, she, well, I don't think she brought it up in there, but did she bring it up in there? But power amongst the people who rule over us now, the people who have ruled over people in the past, has tended to corrupt people because we forget about serving others and we get caught up in the thing of serving ourselves. The people that we put in office are there to serve others, not to serve themselves. And that's one of the things we've got to be looking at to, when we vote. Make sure they have this servant mentality. This is what Jesus said. If you desire to be the greatest, then you need to serve the most. You must be the servant of all. When you want to vote for people, look for people who have that attitude of, I'm here to serve. I'm here to help. Tell you what, that's so much, so important, even more so than a lot of things that we, we look at. As Christians, Christians are, are notorious, or notoriously known, I don't know that they all do that, but this is the notoriously known for voting on two issues, marriage and abortion. And we put people in federal office for the purpose of marriage and abortion because it's the Bible principle. But in this country, folks, the federal government is not to dictate marriage and abortion. And if we as Christians put people in office to dictate marriage and abortion from a federal level, then we're asking them to break the Constitution. And that's a lack of understanding on our part. I will never vote for a candidate for a federal position based on their view of abortion. Because first off, they're not supposed to establish it. By the Constitution, you know who's supposed to establish abortion? The state, not the federal government. Roe versus Wade is not just wrong on a biblical standpoint. It is wrong on a constitutional standpoint because the federal government cannot dictate that. It was very well made, at, made out that the federal uh, areas of power were few and well-defined. And the powers of the state were many and loosely uh, loosely defined. I forget the exact uh, phraseology from the Federalist Papers. But that was the idea. And so if Pennsylvania decides that marriage is not between a man and a woman and you don't like that, you move out of the state. And enough people do it, Pennsylvania says, you know what, we can't do this. We've got to go back to, to this way. And by that, no one can 
uh, require you to, to be that way. <clears throat> that's the idea of the federal, our federal government. That's not necessarily you know, the idea of the Bible, but it is the idea of our federal government. And we have to understand that we have to vote according to how our Constitution is set up. And I, I just think that Jesus' principles, you get the people in there who want to serve. That's huge. We just don't see that too much in candidates, no matter what party they're associated with. We don't see too many of them. They just have an attitude that they want to serve. But we have these ones like Haman who have people around them like these folks and they get together. And here's what I want you to be real careful about with this. It is imperative that we refrain from negative conversations. What do you think they were talking about when they all got around Haman? You know that Mordecai guy, that guy who's through there? This is what he's saying about you. This is what he's not doing. When we have negative conversations with other people about people outside of the group we're in, that can be very detrimental. It doesn't stir up good things and stay out of it. We're looking in this particular... Most of the time it doesn't happen this badly. But in this particular situation, an entire nation of people, the Jewish people, were threatened because of negative conversations. Haman had no idea to do this until he had this negative conversation come up. Make sure you don't have it. The Word of God tells us that we have something against our brethren. Who are we supposed to go to? Go to the brethren. Straighten it out. If they don't listen, go grab two or three others and bring them to the brother or sister in question. And sit them down. Talk to them about it. And if that doesn't work, then you have the uh, third way to go. But that's the way we're supposed to handle it. These folks did go to Mordecai and try and straighten it out there. And when it wasn't done, they didn't bring Mordecai to Haman. They didn't, of course, they're not going to follow the biblical principle. They aren't godly. But just understand, don't get caught up in this. The people in the world around us love negative conversations. They do. Oh, they love it. And sometimes we can find ourselves wanting to be liked by them and fall into it because they are enjoying our negative conversation about someone so much. How many have ever been involved in a negative conversation, got stuck to it somehow, and you're noticing that the people in the world that are around you just love this and they're actually liking you a little bit better? Still stay away from it. Don't get involved in the negative conversations. We do have to be careful. doesn't mean you can't state what's going on. But make sure that if you're going to state what's going on that you've already stated it to the person in question. That that's already been been established. Because <clears throat> otherwise we can get ourselves in trouble. Put in your, in your outline the right thing to do is always the right thing regardless of personal sacrifice. Esther at first was looking at standing up for her people as maybe the right thing to do but it's great personal sacrifice on this. <laughs> I might die. King hasn't called me for a, a while. And um, if I just show up, I might die. That's just the way that the Persian king set it up. Even though she was queen, the highest of all the wives, uh, she did not have the right to go into the, into the chamber. Now understand, what she is going to do is not what Vashti did. It's not on the same thing. She is not ignoring a command of the husband. What she's going to do is she, she's going to follow this the way it is. And the idea is you can show up and you can stand there. And if he acknowledges you, then you're saved. If you're not, you die. And so she says, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. If he doesn't acknowledge me, I will die. But if he acknowledges me, then we'll go on from there. And so that's what she's going to, 
going to go ahead and do. So she knows the, the rules of the land and what she is allowed to do and what she can't do. But the right thing to do is always the right thing to do, regardless of personal sacrifice. Sometimes we look at our own personal sacrifice that's involved in the thing and we say, I'm not sure if, I, if that's the right thing to do or not. And we want to talk ourselves out of the right thing to do. What's the right thing to do here? Well, it would be this, except that I don't want to necessarily want to go this way. I don't want to have to endure this. I don't want to have to go through this. I might die, <laughs> whatever it might be. I might lose money. No, don't be, uh, don't be getting that. The right thing to do is always the right thing, regardless of personal sacrifice. What is the right thing to do? For God, there is the right thing. He, he doesn't have a whole lot of gray areas. I don't think he's got it any. It's either right or it's not. You're either in faith on it or you're not in faith. If you're not in faith in it, then it's the wrong thing for you. If you're in faith, then it must be okay. There's a right and there's a wrong. Don't be afraid to do the right thing. How many of you have people that you could have negative conversations with about but decide, you know what? The Word of God says I should handle it this way, so I'm going to go ahead and handle it this way. Is it the right thing to do? Well, then people might not like me. They might not accept me too much. They might, uh, whatever. But is the right thing to do the right thing to do? This, regardless of personal sacrifice. This is one of the things we can take from the book of Esther. She realized what the right thing to do was here, which is stand up for her people. Mordecai told her, you, may, you are in a position to help the Jews. But if you don't do it, God will raise up another way. I do like that about Mordecai. At least he didn't focus all on the one spot. He realized God's going to deliver us. It could be by you. It may not be by you. Of course, if it wasn't by her, we wouldn't have this book, would we? <laughs> At least if we did, if he called something else, and uh, something else would be going on. The right thing to do is always the right thing to do, regardless of personal sacrifice. And beware of negative conversations. Just beware of them. Don't get involved with them. They are the easiest thing to get suckered into. They, it is so easy to get suckered into these things. If you get suckered into one, just realize I'm in a negative conversation and find a way to get out of it. Because it it's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. And you're going to feel poorly about it later on. Just get out of the negative conversation. Remember these guys. Remember what it started. Don't, be, don't be have a hand in starting any of these things. You surely don't need it. Father, we thank You for the help that You give us in Your Word. We thank You that we can clearly see that the right thing to do is the right thing to do. To refrain from negative conversations that just are not beneficial. They don't help anybody. Father, as conspiracies go, they are all around us. But no matter how great the conspiracy, no matter how great the plans that are laid, our God is greater. Oh, and we thank You for it. We give you the praise and the glory for it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.